Chapter 32. Cetology. Part 2. To proceed. Book 1, Chapter 4. Humpback. This whale is often seen on the northern American coast. He has been frequently captured there and towed into harbor. He has a great pack on him, like a peddler, or you might call him the elephant and castle whale. At any rate, the popular name for him does not sufficiently distinguish him, since the sperm whale also has a hump, though a smaller one. His oil is not very valuable. He has baleen. He is the most gamesome and lighthearted of all the whales, making more gay foam and white water generally than any of them. Book 1, Chapter 5 Razorback Of this whale little is known but his name— I have seen him at a distance off Cape Horn. Of a retiring nature, he eludes both hunters and philosophers. Though no coward, he has never yet shown any part of him but his back, which rises in a long, sharp ridge. Let him go. I know little more of him, nor does anybody else. Book 1, Chapter 6 Sulphur Bottom Another retiring gentleman, with a brimstone belly, doubtless got by scraping along the Tartarian tiles in some of his profounder divings. He is seldom seen, at least I have never seen him except in the remoter southern seas, and then always at too great a distance to study his countenance. He is never chased. He would run away with rope walks of line. Prodigies are told of him. Adieu, Sulphur Bottom, I can say nothing more that is true of ye, nor can the oldest Nantucketer. Thus ends Book One, and now begins Book Two. Octavos These embrace the whales of middling magnitude, among which present may be the numbered 1. The Grampus, 2. The Blackfish, 3. The Narwhale, 4. The Thrasher, 5. The Killer. Why this book of whales is not denominated the quarto is very plain. Because while the whales of this order, though smaller than those of the former order, nevertheless retain a proportionate likeness to them in figure, yet the bookbinder's quarto volume, in its dimensioned form, does not preserve the shape of the folio volume, but the octavo volume does. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 1, Grampus Though this fish, whose loud sonorous breathing, or rather blowing, has furnished a proverb to landsmen, is so well known a denizen of the deep, yet is he not popularly classed among whales. But possessing all the grand distinctive features of the leviathan, most naturalists have recognized him for one. He is of moderate octavo size, varying from fifteen to twenty-five feet in length, and of corresponding dimensions round the waist. He swims in herds. He is never regularly hunted, though his oil is considerable in quantity, and pretty good for light. By some fishermen his approach is regarded as premonitory of the advance of the great sperm whale. Book 2. Octavo. Chapter 2. Blackfish. I give the popular fishermen's names for all these fish, for generally they are the best. Where any name happens to be vague or inexpressive, I shall say so, and suggest another, 
I do so now, touching the blackfish so cold, because blackness is the rule among almost all whales. So call him the hyena whale, if you please. His veracity is well known, and from the circumstance that the inner angles of his lips are curved upwards, he carries an everlasting grin on his face. This whale averages some 16 or 18 feet in length. He is found in almost all latitudes. He has a peculiar way of showing his dorsal hooked fin in swimming, which looks something like a Roman nose. When not more profitably employed, the sperm whale hunters sometimes capture the hyena whale to keep up the supply of cheap oil for domestic employment, as some frugal housekeepers, in the absence of company and quite alone by themselves, burn on savory tallow instead of odorless wax. Though their blubber is very thin, some of these whales will yield you upwards of thirty gallons of oil. Book Two, Octavo, Chapter Three Narwhale That is, Nostril Whale Another instance of a curiously named whale, so named, I suppose, from his peculiar horn, being originally mistaken for a peaked nose. The creature is some sixteen feet in length, while its horn averages five feet, though some exceed ten, and even attain to fifteen feet. Strictly speaking, this horn is but a lengthened tusk, growing out from the jaw in a line a little depressed from the horizontal. But it is only found on the sinister side, which has an ill effect, giving its owner something analogous to the aspect of a clumsy left-handed man. What precise purpose this ivory horn or lance answers, it would be hard to say. It does not seem to be used like the blade of the swordfish and billfish, though some sailors tell me that the narwhale employs it for a rake in turning over the bottom of the sea for food. Charlie Coffin said it was used for an ice piercer, for the narwhale, rising to the surface of the polar sea and finding it sheeted with ice, thrusts his horn up and so breaks through. But you cannot prove either of these surmises to be correct. My own opinion is that however this one-sided horn may really be used by the narwhale, however that may be, it would certainly be very convenient to him for a folder in reading pamphlets. The narwhale I have heard called the tusked whale, the horned whale, and the unicorn whale. He is certainly a curious example of unicornism to be found in almost every kingdom of animated nature. From certain cloistered old authors, I have gathered that the same sea unicorn's horn was in ancient days regarded as the great antidote against poison, and as such, preparations of it brought immense prices. It was also distilled to a volatile salts for fainting ladies, the same way that the horns of the male deer are manufactured into heart's horn. Originally, it was in itself accounted an object of great curiosity, Blackletter tells me that Sir Martin Frobisher, on his return from that voyage, when Queen Bess did gallantly wave her jeweled hand to him from a window of Greenwich Palace, as his bold ship sailed down the Thames. When Sir Martin returned from that voyage, saith Blackletter, on bended knees he presented to Her Highness a prodigious long horn of the Narwhale, which for a long period after hung in the castle at Windsor. An Irish author avers that the Earl of Leicester on bended knees did likewise present to Her Highness another horn pertaining to a land beast of the unicorn nature.
The narwhale has a very picturesque, leopard-like look, being of a milk-white ground color, dotted with round and oblong spots of black. His oil is very superior, clear and fine, but there is little of it, and he is seldom hunted. He is mostly found in the circumpolar seas. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 4 Killer Of this whale little is precisely known to the Nantucketer, and nothing at all to the professed naturalist. From what I have seen of him at a distance, I should say that he was about the bigness of a grampus. He is very savage, a sort of Fiji fish. He sometimes takes the great folio whales by the lip and hangs there like a leech till the mighty brood is worried to death. The killer is never hunted. I never heard what sort of oil he has. Exception might be taken to the name bestowed upon this whale on the ground of its indistinctness. For we are all killers on land and on sea, Bonaparte's and sharks included. Book Two, Octavo, Chapter Five. Thrasher. This gentleman is famous for his tail, which he uses in thrashing his foes. He mounts the folio whale's back, and as he swims, he works his passage by flogging him, as some schoolmasters get along in the world by a similar process. Still less is known of the thrasher than of the killer. Both are outlaws, even in the lawless seas. Thus ends Book Two, Octavo, and begins Book Three, Duodecimo. Duodecimos. These include the smaller whales. One, the Huzza porpoise. Two, the Algerian porpoise. Three, the mealy-mouthed porpoise. To those who have not chanced specially to study the subject, it may possibly seem strange that fishes, not commonly exceeding four or five feet, should be marshaled among whales, a word which in the popular sense always conveys an idea of hugeness. But the creatures set down above as duodecimos are infallibly whales, by the terms of my definition of what a whale is, i.e., a spouting fish with a horizontal tail. Book 3. Duodecimo. Chapter 1. Huzzah Porpoise. This is the common porpoise found almost all over the globe. The name is of my own bestowal, for there are more than one sort of porpoises, and something must be done to distinguish them. I call him thus because he always swims in hilarious shoals, which upon the broad sea keep tossing themselves to heaven like caps in a Fourth of July crowd. Their appearance is generally hailed with delight by the mariner. Full of fine spirits, they invariably come from the breezy billows to windward. They are the lads that always live before the wind. They are accounted a lucky omen. If you yourself can withstand three cheers at beholding these vivacious fish, then heaven help ye. The spirit of godly gamesomeness is not in ye. A well-fed, plump, huzzah porpoise will yield you one good gallon of good oil. But the fine and delicate fluid extracted from his jaws is exceedingly valuable. It is in request among jewelers and watchmakers. Sailors put it on their hones. Porpoise meat is good eating, you know. It may never have occurred to you that a porpoise spouts. Indeed, his spout is so small that it is not readily discernible. But the next time you have a chance, watch him, and you will then see the great sperm whale himself.'
in miniature. Book Three, Duodecimo, Chapter Two, Algerine Porpoise. A pirate, very savage. He is only found, I think, in the Pacific. He is somewhat larger than the Huzzah porpoise, but much of the same general make. Provoke him, and he will buckle to a shark. I have lowered for him many times, but never yet saw him captured. Book Three, Duodecimo, Chapter Three, Mealy Mouth Porpoise. The largest kind of porpoise, and only found in the Pacific so far as it is known. The only English name by which he has hitherto been designated is that of the fishers, right whale porpoise, from the circumstance that he is chiefly found in the vicinity of that folio. In shape, he differs in some degree from the Huzzah porpoise, being of a less rotund and jolly girth. Indeed, he is of quite a neat and gentlemanlike figure. He has no fins on his back, most other porpoises have. He has a lovely tail and sentimental Indian eyes of a hazel hue. But his mealy mouth spoils all. Though his entire back down to his side fins is of a deep sable, yet a boundary line distinct as the mark in a ship's hull, called the bright waist. That line streaks him from stem to stern with two separate colors, black above and white below. The white compromises part of his head and the whole of his mouth, which makes him look as if he had just escaped from a felonious visit to a meal bag. A most mean and mealy aspect. His oil is much like that of the common porpoise. Beyond the duodecimo, the system does not proceed, inasmuch as the porpoise is the smallest of the whales. Above, you have all the leviathans of note. But there are a rabble of uncertain, fugitive, half-fabulous whales, which, as an American whaleman, I know by reputation, but not personally. If any of the following whales shall hereafter be caught and marked, then he can readily be incorporated into this system, according to his folio, octavo, or duodecimo magnitude. The bottlenose whale, the junk whale, the pudding-headed whale, the cape whale, the leading whale, the cannon whale, the scrag whale, the coppered whale, the elephant whale, the iceberg whale, the quag whale, the blue whale, etc., From Icelandic, Dutch, and Old English authorities, there might be quoted other lists of uncertain whales, blessed with all manner of uncouth names. But I omit them as altogether obsolete, and can hardly help suspecting them for mere sounds full of leviathism, but signifying nothing. Finally, it was stated at the outset that this system would not be here and at once perfected. You cannot but plainly see that I have kept my word— but I now leave my cetologic system standing thus unfinished, even as the great cathedral of Cologne was left, with the crane still standing upon the top of the uncompleted tower. For small erections may be finished by their first architects. Grand ones, true ones, ever leave the copstone to posterity. God keep me from ever completing anything. This whole book is but a draft. Nay, but the draft of a draft. Oh, Time, strength, cash, and patience. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.